Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome. No, no, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the nose. I have to turn up this thing. You see, you're getting a little fourth wall stuff here right now. So we're down in the uh, our beautiful studios in the uh, Gateway, beautiful community, beautiful college, and beautiful New Haven. And I don't really know how anything works here. And I don't really have to operate very many things, and I'm still stymied. So, uh, but anyway, it's good to be here in New Haven. I took the train down uh, from Hartford. Do take the tra- It's such a nice thing. I, 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 took, I took the train yeah? from, from the airport, and getting to the train was hard, but... right. But well, the, that might the ride be hard. was great. Yeah, and it's yeah. just so great. And I get off at State Street, and I walk over here, and it's you know it's great. So uh, some of the voices you already heard uh, are our guests on the nose today. Uh, that was Pedro Soto, an account executive at DRT Power Systems in New Haven. Uh, Tom Breen is a film critic reporter for the New Haven Independent and host of WNHH Radio's a film program. Deep focus. <laughs> uh, Mercy Quay is founder and uh, n- executive director of the Narrative Project. Would you like me to start saying the Narrative Project in a specific voice the way I do for Tom? Well, no, 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 but work it out for sure. Right. Uh, you, you remember this. Oh, right. I have to do that. I have to work yeah, it out. Yeah, so, work so, it out. Oh, but that's not even in It's here not on there. No. Yeah. So you still do a program called Work It Out? I do. We're. we're I, oh. I'm so white when I do the Work It Out thing, though. Like, I have a. She's laughing because she thinks I'm so white 100% of the time, <laughs> not just when I'm saying a particular thing and trying to snap my fingers the way she wants me to. Um, but Explaining my laughter is like my favorite thing. <laughs> well, your mouth is a percussive <laughs> instrument. You told us that. Um, so that should be contextualized. You were beatboxing here in the studio. And and my fiance thinks that my mouth is a percussive instrument. Because you make noise when you eat. When I eat, yeah. Yeah. I do because things are so delicious. I didn't want you to think that I just said something weird like that to Mercy <laughs> Quick. All right. So later in the show, speaking of weird, we'll be talking about uh, Sharp Objects. This is um, uh, an HBO offering. It comes from um, uh, Gillian Flynn, she of Gone Girl and other mm-hmm. things. Uh, it is made by the director of Big Little Lies and Wild and Dallas Bar- Buyers Club. And it stars uh, Amy Adams, uh, ably assisted by Patricia Clarkson. So we'll be coming to that. It's it, it's, it's set in um, Wind Gap, Missouri, which apparently is the day-drinking capital of America, <laughs> uh, and many other things mm-hmm. beside. But we'll come to that. Uh, before we get to that, we're going to talk about two things here in the first segment. Uh, one of them is um, sort of the latest round of people in the media um, having to explain things that they said or tweeted or did a long time ago. Uh, And in particular, James Gunn, director of Guardians of the Galaxy, and Sarah Silverman. Surprise, surprise, Sarah Silverman has said outrageous things in the past. Uh, Anyway, we'll explain all that to you. But first, we have to begin with Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande, we're just going to sort of assume that you kind of know who Ariana Grande is. Well, don't assume that because Tom didn't. Tom didn't? Not at all. (gasps) You have no, I, there's no Ariana Grande. But rest assured, listeners, I now do know who Ariana Grande <laughs> is and am equipped to talk about at least this one. All right. Well, uh, maybe I should assign to you the job of quickly ex- explaining. Oh, who no, 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 no. That's, no. no that's, oh, okay. She's that's, a dimin- that's a misplacement. She's a diminutive <laughs> pop star, uh, a uh, 
little singer with a big voice. Uh, and um, she has had lots of pop hits. But here in this summer, she's uh, in the process of releasing a new album. Uh, and one of the songs on that album, which has a video that accompanies it, um, introduces the not particularly new or novel idea uh, that God is a woman. I mean, the notion of God, God having feminine qualities, God being referred to by a female pronoun is, you know, it's not terra incognita. It might be terra incognita in the world of the top 40 or the Billboard Hot 100. Um, There's some other things to say about this, um, and particularly because it's also apparently terra incognita in the area around Wind Gap, Missouri and other places <laughs> like that where people think God is masculine and end of story. So first of all, uh, let's hear a little Ariana Grande if we could you you love it how I move you you love it how I touch you my one when all is said and done you will believe God is a woman and I I feel it after midnight a feeling that you can't fight my one it lingers when we're done you believe God is a Okay, so what goes with this uh, is a video. We'll, we'll come to the video, and the video has its own set of issues. But um, so, and, and the other thing that we have to tell you that is, yes, out in the Bible Belt, wherever that is, um, this has been upsetting. Um, people who say I've been tweeting about it, saying, "My God is not a woman." Sorry to break it to you, but you're not God, and He should never be mentioned in a song about sex. That's just disgusting and disrespectful. So, I guess maybe the first thing to say, Mercy, is. This is not a theological song about whether or not God is a woman. I mean, Ariana's argument is that you will enjoy your physical encounter with me so much that will cause you to believe that God is a woman. Which is not atypical of, right, like people's uh, sort of assessment of their own um, sexual performance, right? Like, I'm God's <laughs> gift. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> right? Like the fra- phrase that, oh, my, he my thinks he's God's you'll gift. believe God to... is a clown or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, you know, she, she, I mean, also, she makes me so uncomfortable because I can't think of her as anything but, like, a teenager. So this song. Right. Like, we should say she was introduced to the world. She was like a Nickelodeon star she, or something, uh, right? Was it Nickelodeon Disney? Yeah. I think or she was Disney. a Disney star, and so yeah. I feel really uncomfortable listening to right, right like this f- sort of affirmation of her her womanhood. Um, 
but also, I mean, it's got a kind of catchy beat. And I think that, like, it, it, the the mention that um, God should be never discussed in in a song uh, about sex is just sort of maybe dismissive of the fact that half of the Bible is about sex one way or another, right? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I don't God know. presumably invented sex along exactly. with everything else. <laughs> so it's... Uh, it's a little difficult for me to separate the song from the video because th- this is the first time that I'm listening to just the music independent of the images that go alongside it. And uh, I think that it is a total, a sounding, a totally um, familiar, pretty nondescript top 40 pop song, you know, put together by a very competent uh artist, but I think that combined with, one, the controversy of the Twitter response, but also the, the images of the video becomes a much more interesting thing to think about. And I'll give you very quickly the, the two, uh, the two, my two takeaways from this video and this song uh, is that it's not necessarily provoking me to think that God is a woman, but more in terms of, uh, you know, there's a lot of conversation around non-gender binary pronouns in the culture at large right now. And what I saw in some of the like Twitter response to the video of, you know, God is not a man, is not a woman. It's it's God, but also we refer to God by he. I thought, you know, this is a really uh, provoking me to think about how these you know, familiar gender pronouns are not applicable to, you know, if, if you don't think God is dead and if you think God is, is still out there, then uh, I don't think he or she is either the right way to to, is to be talking about this. Uh, for for the video, I so think So I just want to pause for a second. You actually extracted a meaningful... There was a lot. Got, and then there I, was a lot there <laughs> just yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think, you know, I'm glad that you also introduced her as like, you know, she is known as a diminutive artist. Like she's very a very petite woman, but probably one of the more powerful images in this very like zany and strange video for me is of her uh, maybe like 30 foot you know feet tall and then all of these uh kind of paper cutouts of very angry white men hurling invectives at her i mean it's uh, it's certain it's not (laughs) not a subtle or ambiguous uh, image but i think it certainly speaks to you know a very real phenomenon of you know you speak up at all as a woman and be prepared for the horde of men to be throwing uh, vile your way. Um, I had a friend uh, who, when the movie Ishtar came out, Ishtar was like this famous mm-hmm. disaster uh, starring Warren Beatty and uh, Dustin Hoffman at the peak of their careers and directed by Beatty. And she had this really uh, explanation as to why it was a really good movie. Uh, and she had ex- extracted content from it that I don't think had been put there. And I said, you should just say that and Warren Beatty will like fly you out to LA yeah. you know, and just <laughs> bring you around to parties with them and stuff like that. And you could, the same thing could happen to you. You you did such a good job getting some information. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to the screeching groundhogs. No, we'll, yeah. But I'm sure, you know, I'm I'm afraid Pe- of, Pedro's I'm, probably going to go there. Yeah, no, I, actually, I, I haven't seen the video, but I just heard the song, um, and I read through the lyrics as I was uh, listening to the song a few times. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it is, it, it, the interesting thing is just that because the title is just God is a woman and not you'll believe God is a woman, it, you know, that's probably 90% of Twitter reaction is simply the title. Uh, versus anything else, um, although you know, thinking about Ariana Grande and and her love life um, really, really makes me uncomfortable. Considering that she's now engaged to Pete Davidson uh, from mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live, and that's just <laughs> I, right. I mean, put this song, watch Pete Davidson for five minutes, and then just spend the rest of the afternoon just untwisting what you have just seen because it's. That's, that's just crazy. <laughs> I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had the best. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
No, be, be, uh, because uh, Beyonce didn't come under as much fire as Ariana Grande is now. But back when Lemonade came out, mm-hmm. right? Her there was a big thing in um, one of the many videos from that entire. Uh, what was it, the movie that she put together? Lemonade. It's, lemonade. The, it was called Lemonade, right. And she said, God is a black woman, right? I, she didn't come near under nearly as much fire as Ariana Grande did. I think Beyonce is a really good comparison point for this because if uh, stuff like Demolition and Lemonade and even the Girls We Run the World video, yeah. you know, she's kind of, she is no stranger to feminist mm-hmm. uh, music videos. Um, but those are actual movies. I mean, they, they really have like a, a filmic sensibility yeah. to them. This feels like an internet meme piled on top of an internet meme piled on top. And I don't necessarily of, mean yeah. that in a pejorative way. Like I found some of the images very silly. I found some kind of powerful, but they all seem to be alluding to some like crazy stuff on the internet that uh, that contributes to whatever toxic masculine culture she may or may not be commenting upon. It actually but might I be alluding it. to something on the internet and this that I don't know about. <laughs> like, and throughout watching the entire movie, I'm, uh, the video, I'm just like, is there? There's a reference here that I don't. I'm not getting, and I'm offended by that. <laughs> well, I think also it, it makes sense to differentiate between some of the messages cited by Beyonce who is essentially saying the world would be a better place if people mm-hmm. thought about it this way, mm-hmm. whereas Ariana Grande's fundamental argument is, I'm so good and bad that I will actually fa- cause you to ab- adjust your ideas about the deity, which I <laughs> think is a less <laughs> constructive <laughs> <laughs> message, right? I mean, that is yeah. not really a message that is going to help the rest of the world. Right. You know, right. whereas I That's think persuasive. That is, yeah. yeah, you know, see, that wasn't that wasn't my takeaway from watching the video. It may no. be, if upon yeah. closer well, you got a lot inspection. Of well, the video was made by, the, the by a man uh, named Dave go. Myers, uh, and I think he took it to another place. He, he took it to mm-hmm. a place, let's have an argument about the white patriarchy. And also, I think just the comfort of showing vaginal imagery in movies. Like, you know, this is something goes back a long time. The early, there are a lot of very strange, like, feminist, separatist art house films from the early 70s that uh, that are, like, trying to do somewhat similar stuff. But I give Ariana, credit, Ariana Grande credit for, like, Put, like in the same way that Giorgio, not same artistry, but the same yeah, way that Giorgio is throwing like you know <laughs> vaginas and her stuff and challenging people to to like you know think about vagina in like represented visually in popular art. I don't. know. I think that's kind of cool for a pop star to do. For <laughs> me, it was sort of like okay, we get it. Like all of these <laughs> images, like all the Yannick images, it was just like every transition was through some sort of like vaginal kind of thing. <laughs> and it's like, we get it. You got as a woman. Okay, got it. You got it. You sold it. But still, I think it's it is unique because it's not the run of the mill happening in every music video, right? So it is kind of a unique take on that. I mean, I think the song the song is the song, and then they decided to to like make a statement with the video. Yeah, I, I think it was uniquely overdone. Right. <laughs> I, well, if you're gonna go there, right? Yeah. I, I did feel as though yes, uh, Yannick was the word that you used in the uh, in our emails. I felt we went a little further than that. I felt like God was being scoped or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we had God in the stir- stir- stirrups here. Here, definitely a trip to the So yeah. So anyway, many people were triggered in various ways, and that was the way I was triggered anyway. Like it's Yannick is one thing, fallopian is like another 
completely <laughs> different area. I don't really want to go there. Uh, all right, we have to shift gears here uh, to a somewhat more serious uh, situation, uh, which is that, um, and this has now become sort of, uh, well, let me kind of describe what I see as the arc of this. Part of the arc of this was that the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, uh, really did call people on the carpet a little bit about how they talked about various things in the past, what kind of images that they used. A lot of people have been called to account for their be- actual behavior, uh, and other people have been uh, called to account for their words. This has been hijacked a little bit by um, the opposition. Uh, it's been hijacked by the right. Uh, increasingly, there are attempts to delve into things that have been said uh, by uh, famous people in the past. So James Gunn, uh, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, somebody uh, unearthed some very old tweets uh, of his at a time when he was uh, very intentionally on Twitter, a provocateur uh, trying to uh, stir people up in, in various ways, in various ways that may seem kind of tasteless. Uh, Sarah Silverman, who has basically spent the early part of her career almost entirely devoting herself to stirring people up in very funny ways by bringing up things that people were not entirely comfortable with their own laughter about, uh, also has in the past um, used Twitter as a place to kind of try out some super transgressive material that's uh, come bubbling up here. And some of this is just sort of the age that we live in. Um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll just sort of, I'll, I'll throw it out. It's not even clear what the consequences of all this are. I sort of, Tom, I find it hard to understand how Sarah Silverman can get in trouble <laughs> for transgressive material. Oh, that's right. Yeah, James Gunn, we should say, got fired off the Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy uh, series. So, I mean, there's there are consequences for him. I, I don't know what can be done to Sarah Silverman. It's not like she said she was somebody else. So, I I think that we need to update that uh, that statement by Faulkner that the past is never dead. It's not even past by saying the past is never dead. It's not even past. It's on Twitter right. because every single thing, especially for anyone looking to, to create some kind, you know, to test out a joke or to create a, a, a facet of their personality uh, for the public is now, you know, forever memorialized on this platform. And how strange, well, maybe we'll get to in a second, how it's, it's not strange. It seems to be a very calculated ploy uh, by the alt-right right to do what Mark Harris from Vulture says, which is to get us to think that the tasteless the tasteless and the racist and hateful are in fact the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that what people like the alt-right blogger Mark, uh, Mike Cernovich in attacking James Gunn uh, has done and, and the same folks who attack Sarah Silverman, are, they, they are winning that battle right now in, in identifying bad jokes, jokes about pedophilia that are, are not, I mean, yes, any joke about pedophilia is terrible, but these there's aren't. But. There's I a mean, there, but there's between, no like yeah. these aren't yeah. particularly graphic or shocking to. I, I don't know. There seems to this seems to fit very well within the style of humor and style of provocateurness of both of these people. But of course, context doesn't matter for the alt right when attacking people for anything that they say. It's all about decontextualizing nonsense and turning it into something into that they weapon. identify right. as hate speech yeah. to justify their own hate speech. It is infuriating and so much less serious than whatever Ariana Grande is doing. It drives me nuts. <laughs> For me, it's it's so (laughs) elementary. For me, it's like really elementary that uh, they don't give people uh, credit for the complex human beings that we are. And I mean, right? Like you sort of you attribute this to the uh, the slippery slope of free speech or restricting free speech conversation, and it's just like no, no, it's not a slippery slope, right? We can be complex individuals who who in two thousand three, right, thought that pedophilia jokes were funny and now we are a little bit more complex and we've grown in the culture and things like joking about uh, 
pedophilia and rape, for instance, are no longer funny because we've developed as a culture. But even going back, I mean, the thing that drives I, I, I share your just like ludicrousness and the fact that like, you know, Disney fired him. I, I was just I was just like, what are you doing? Like, stand up, have a conversation and defend him to the hilt. This is ridiculous because exactly what you say, you're we're we're literally you know, we're 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 getting down to the pigs level. Yeah. Um and we're basically equivalent you know, we're we're basically saying, Okay, a bad joke is equivalent to people who say things that actually believe the hate, right? Mike Cernovich actually believes what he's saying. James Gunn didn't believe what he was saying. And the fact that they're now equal and that um, you know, it's kind of like the Roseanne, you know, <clears throat> versus uh, you know James Gunn, and and now it's sort of like you know it, it's you know the, the right loves to to do this. Um, well, if you take one of ours down, we're going to take one of yours down. And um, the fact that this is where we are is just awful. I really hope that James Gunn gets rehired. That someone wakes up one day and says, "Oh, this was ridiculous," uh, and 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 moves on. But for now, I it, it is in, absolutely infuriating. And then also with the Roseanne thing, we're talking, we're comparing something current, something mm-hmm. she said, yes. what, like yep. that day, to something he said years ago. Yes, when he wasn't when, James Gunn. Exactly, when he was not in the public sphere. And I said this before on the show that we uh, were thinking we're trying to decide whether or not to hold Roseanne accountable for the thing. She wants us to hold her. She she does not mm-hmm. want to be separated from the person that she's been putting forth. Whereas James Gunn, right, like that is not it was it was a joke made based off of right something he thought was funny, not something he is. And this isn't a free speech debate at all. No. In in my eyes or ears. This is all I mean but yes, people can make pedophilia jokes. I think the First Amendment definitely covers one's right to do that. Not but, specifically, but, but yeah. this is this is a, this is a debate. This is a debate about uh, <laughs> whether whether it is okay to act in total bad faith in decontextualizing statements from people's careers and then uh, assuming that your hate speech is okay if someone else says something that again is in bad taste but not perpetrating anything. And the bad also, faith. One thing, another differenti- differentiation I would make here is Roseanne's tweet was about um, actual real people uh, right. who are living their lives right now. Yep. Um, these tweets from the past are kind of hypothetical, imaginary situations. They may be tasteless. They didn't really apply to any very specific person. And the other thing that I have to say is uh, some of the trouble could have been avoided if a lot of these people, right around that time, I, can't, I should have looked up when the book came out, but the, the media theorist Clay Shirky, who's written very intelligently about the uh, internet over the years, uh, wrote a book called Here Comes Everybody. And one of the points he he makes in this book, which is written quite a few years ago, like probably Mm -hmm. around the time these people were tweeting, uh, he says, you're publishing. You're a publisher now. Mm -hmm. If you are on Twitter, you're publishing. Everybody has become a publisher. Uh, That's what this is. It's publishing. And I think for a lot of comedians, even to unto this day, and and I would even put myself in this category sometimes too. It's we think of Twitter as a place where you can try out material, you know, and there's there's other people around that you know, and maybe some other people around that you don't know that you wouldn't mind impressing uh, with your ability to write a certain kind of joke. Or and so certainly back then they were thinking of this more like a funny little cellar club somewhere in mm-hmm. Jersey City or something where you could try out some material before you brought it to a, a more brightly lit stage. And it's anything but it is publishing. It is the stage. Yeah, it is. And it's publishing. You are publishing something. So whatever permanence and level of of, of self uh, censorship you bring to the act of publishing 
<laughs> something that you're doing. You should think about it that way on Twitter. And they just didn't. And, and they're, But I, I agree with everything that you guys are saying, too, that there's a way in which this was just an attempt to sort of, you know, workshop some some transgressive comedy ideas as opposed to present some kind of design for a living that involves having sex with children. Yeah. I think it, by this token... Right. By 2020, every single person will be held accountable for every single thing they've ever tweeted except Donald Trump. <laughs> right. Like, yep. I, I, I just I just feel I, as though I, we don't give ourselves enough credit for being for being able to evolve with the culture. I do love that, um, you know, the people who doggedly go back and find every old Trump tweet that basically, oh, that's my you favorite. know, is the opposite of the, what he's currently saying or s- saying something just ridiculous just to remind us. The Twitter creature that he is. I think there should be some new Twitter rules. I think one of them should be like the five-second rule about f- food that's dropped on the floor. I think you should have about five hours to take a tweet down. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, just to- you know, before you're held completely accountable. I, I did a really stupid tweet during the World Cup, which somebody called me on right away, and I thought that's really dumb. And I said I tweeted back and said that was a stupid joke by me. I'm taking it down, uh, and presumably it's cached, you know, in 95 different locations. Oh, for sure. And, um, so yeah, I, that I would be that good. And I also think that maybe we do need a Twitter statute of limitations or, you know, or something like that, because <laughs> it is different. Something that you're tweeting today, if you're Roseanne Barr, is kind of different from what you might have understood Twitter to be, you know, nine years. We're not going to get a statute of limitations, but it might make sense to so have one. So I really enjoyed the conversation that you had on this very program on Monday, talking about some political reporters like Maggie Haberman, who mm-hmm. are uh, temporarily uh, uh, tobacco, or t- Tobac- temporarily tobacco, abstaining yeah. from from uh, retweeting and also Quietus. reading President Trump's tweets, uh, just because of the inane like inundation of all, all that stuff. How it, it's not necessarily news to write about that every single day. But I I I think I disagree. I think that. That it's very important to read everything that President Trump uh, tweets, especially if you're writing about it as a, a national politics reporter, um, for exactly what you just said, Con, because these are, you know, published statements by the, you know, the the head of our, our, our country. And I don't think that it's unreasonable to look at one of these tweets by Sarah Silverman or uh, James Gunn and say, this is horrible. You know, why? why you know, not to say, uh we don't have to look at this because it's so long ago. No, I think it's fine to have a conversation about, mm-hmm. but I think it's ridiculous to fire these people mm-hmm. from projects within, you know, hours um, without without having, you know, a, without giving the the statute of limitation or without giving that kind of that thinking time to but, stop. But and back say, to All Pedro's right. point, it was so easy Context. for Disney just to pull the trigger really fast, you know? I mean, and I'm sure that that's sort of their corporate algorithm right now. Or we're getting this kind of pushback, just lose them, you know? Let's, we'll just lose them and then we'll, we'll figure something out, else yeah. out later. We should take a break just so we have time to enter the uh, day drinking capital of America uh, <laughs> and meet Amy Adams as blousy and miserable as you will ever see her. So we'll do that. Thank you. 
Here we are uh, back in the studios of Gateway Community College. I mean, our studios in Gateway Community College. Uh, with me uh, are Tom Breen and Mercy Quay and Pedro Soto. Uh, we are talking now about uh, a new release on HBO. I think we're only three episodes deep uh, now into Sharp Objects. Sharp Objects uh, is based on an early novel by Gillian Flynn. Uh, it's directed, by the, as I said before, the, by the director of uh, Big Little Lies and movies like Wild and uh, Dallas Buyers Club, stars uh, Amy Adams as a reporter, a newspaper reporter who's getting sent back to her hometown uh, where there's been some murders by her boss, Frank Curry, who sort of, if Lou Grant smoked and drank more and was more Southern or (laughs) something. Uh, Anyway, uh, here's the two of them. Wind Gap, what's it like? Okay, well, um, it's at the bottom of Missouri. Boot Hill, spitting distance from Tennessee. I know where it is. I asked what it's like. Small populations held at 2,000 for years. Only real industry is hog butchering. So you got your old money in your trash. Mm-hmm. Which one are you? Trash from old money. What the hell's going on? In Wingap, or? Your mom's still there, right, Priga? Mom? Stepdad, they had a kid. Have, I don't really know her. But you talked to them? Not if I can help it. Well, read the wires then. Jesus Christ, there was a murder there last August. A little girl got strangled. Well, I didn't know. Well, then you also don't know that another one's missing now. Might be a serial. So get your ass down to that heel or whatever and get me a story now, today. Uh, we have murders here, Curry, so I don't see why I gotta go to Wingap. Because nobody else is covering it. Do you remember that piece in the Tribune last year, a guy who wrote about a killing in his hometown? It made an impact because it was personal. People give a when you give a I'm not gonna win a Pulitzer off of Wingap. You're not winning a Pulitzer because you're only half good at writing. This could change that. And I'm your boss. So goodbye. So goodbye. And so uh, Amy Adams, or Camille Preaker, as she's known in the series, uh, heads back down, uh, smoking cigarettes the entire way and uh, doing this odd thing where she transfers vodka into an Evian water bottle and then drinks out of the Evian water bottle, apparently. She's certainly not fooling us. We're watching the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe she fools somebody who she that fooling? way. Who, could, yeah. who knows? She may fool a lot of people, although we're told that uh, it can be still smelled upon her. So, um... Mercy, as my tone suggests, I was less than happy with this. Yeah. Um, but but that's but I'm really happy to find out that that oh, I loved in, it. that you liked it. So uh, get us started here. Okay. So uh, let me explain. <laughs> Part of the reason why I loved it is because I feel like it captures that feeling of a reporter covering things in their hometown, which I relate to. Right. When I when I first started uh, reporting, I was up in Torrington, but then I was moved down to the New Haven Register to cover breaking news. And breaking news is horrible, right? You're covering, and, and especially here in New Haven during the summer, you're covering murders. You're covering uh, just uh, fires, f- triple fate of fires and things like that. And so for me, it was just they got it so right, the the just awkwardness and the, the I don't know, the feeling of this should be fine for me to talk to you but I also know that it's not because I know so much about your family and and I I don't know I I loved being able to relate to that character but right before we went on air we were talking about the genre of uh YouTubing where everyone whispers into the microphone and I kind of feel that way about this show where Amy Adams that's who this is right she's yes. speaking so 
lowly <laughs> that like I am partially glued to the seat and leaning in just to hear just to hear her <laughs> like and and maybe that's a tactic maybe that's like an acting tactic I don't know what it is but I was glued to the seat for that and for just the storyline itself um one thing uh Tom that is going on here also this so this director in this particular environment um I would I would describe his technique as did I actually just see that? Um, yeah. Because there's this this constant sort of flashing of imagery, some of which is from the past, some of which is from the present, some of which is from the imagination, and, and there's not very many good sorting mechanisms. I found that very disorienting. Yeah. So I think that a good word, and I like this series, but I think a good word to describe my experience with it is exhausting. Uh, and I think that it, ca- mm-hmm. so for on the positive side, um, I love what you just said about how this captures the uh, discomfort uh, and fatigue of being a reporter back in your hometown. Because uh, even though I didn't grow up in New Haven, I've been here for eight years and reporting on a daily basis. Um, I think this movie or this show really captures how uh, one, how difficult it is to keep your own personal stuff out of your work yeah. when everyone that you're working with knows your personal stuff when, too, yeah. how difficult that is. But also how you always, you know, y- if all the president's men shows reporters, um, you know, pushing the limits of strangers because they see a really important story. Here we have her knowing that she has to be a little bit ingratiating. She has to stay on the right side of the right people because it's not just that they are a source of good information, but they also share a town with her. Um, but in terms of fatigue, I think that the the style that is a, of just the constant flashbacks of never really knowing uh, whether you, you have your foot is in the past or in the present, um, I think the the good parts of that are kind of an homage to the directing style of David Fincher, who adapted mm-hmm. Gillian Flynn's uh, Gone Girl, mm-hmm. I think very successfully, mm-hmm. uh, a couple years ago, uh, in in its what are called jump cuts, where mm-hmm. you're comfortable in a spot, and then all of a sudden the, the camera takes you immediately to a different area where people are in a similar position, but you're in a completely different setting. It's disorienting. It's kind it's of an exciting feeling, um, but it is also a disorienting one. But that those spatial jumps with the time jumps, I think that it's a bit much for Jean-Marc Vallée to to stay on top of for for most of the series. Fortunately, the series, I think, has a lot of really strong horror elements going for it that maybe I'll get back to you in a second. Right. It, I, can I just say, I don't think it, that would work, that style, that those jump cuts wouldn't work for a film. Because, I mean, even Colin, you said this, uh, f- last night I, I found myself rewinding it every single time I blinked too much, <laughs> right? If I sneezed and I and I missed a couple, there was there's so much context that you lose if you're not right. paying attention. I was actually falling asleep, so <laughs> that's a little bit dark. <laughs> oh, okay. So I went up to rewind as well. <laughs> uh, I also want to say, not in Charlotte's Web have we relied so much on imagery of spiders and pigs. If you have to choose one of the two, I would still say go with Charlotte's <laughs> Web. But... Um, Pedro, uh, we should say that that uh, the uh, the uh, family uh, of Camille, aka Amy Adams, does own a big pig farm, big pig processing thing, uh, and uh, one of the murdered girls is very fond of spiders. So, uh, E.B. White, eat your heart out, I guess. But uh, Pedro, you're, you're a little bit more getting started. You're not quite as deep into the no, yes. hot, uh, <laughs> sultry miasma uh, of um, of sharp objects. But I, I, I gather you're, you're you're with it so far. Yeah, based on, on, on the first episode, um, I think it's, you know, it definitely has that HBO ridiculously high production value to yeah. it. Um, I mean, it's just amazing kind of, you know, the toys that everyone gets to play with these days, I think. Um, It's done great. I think Amy Adams as a grizzled, smoking alcoholic, um, I'm still being like, oh, it could have. I mean, I think that the choice of actor, I think she's a fantastic actress. I think she's great. But her in this in this, I'm still getting used to that because it still feels like, you know, Amy Adams 
playing the character rather than someone who, you know, yeah, there could have been a few other, you know, actresses who I think could have sort of gotten into the role, you know, a lot, look, look the, look the part, act the part a little, a little better. It's sort of like a Jessica Jones, uh, who's that actor from Jessica Jones? Oh, I, I can't think of what her name oh, is. Oh, yeah. So, I was yeah, thinking, she would have been great. Right. Yeah, yeah that, exactly, exactly. I was thinking as you were talking, Elizabeth Taylor waited a lot longer to do Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think, Pedro, I think, I wonder how you'll, res- if you stick with it, how you'll respond to that character mm-hmm. two episodes in, because I think that... Um, my my problem with her the f- the first episode I thought you know here she's constantly drinking and driving constantly yeah. smoking constantly just abusing herself and we see almost none of that in her like Amy Adams like com- like very well put together and still right. like you know very beautiful and like luscious you know red hair mm-hmm. and stuff but then as the show progresses we see how she very deliberately hides uh, okay. the the toll that this is taking on her right. body right. Um, sometimes it's to like you know garish extremes that we mm-hmm. see how how that toll is taking but I think that Amy Adams manages to show show um how you know she's she's wearing like long sleeves not just literally right. but everywhere around her body because if she shows like the one thing she has going for her is that not everyone knows how bad it is for right her. so um speaking as tom was about the horror elements uh, of this we'll play another clip here this is a uh, chris messina as detective richard willis and matt craven uh, as the police chief uh, bill vickery uh, chris messina plays this kind of hotshot who <laughs> has been sent down there under some kind of uh, bring send a hotshot program that the police have uh, to um <laughs> Straighten this out. <laughs> From Kansas City. Yeah. Kansas City hotshot. Yeah. Uh, and Chris Messina is struggling because he's the only person uh, who in town who is not constantly drinking and smoking. The police chief smokes <laughs> so much that she actually becomes somewhat uncomfortable with it. Anyway, here they are trying to figure out what's going on. Morning. Kansas City. You know, I've been thinking. Uh-oh. Why does a killer change his M.O. like that? First body... Left at the kill site in the forest. But Natalie, she's dumped in the middle of town like a prop or a doll. Your daughter had one of them dolls. A little for her mouth. Creepy little things. Getting her there was risky. Way more chance of getting caught. Some killers want to get caught. Cry for help. This one likes making people scared for their girls. Can we just save the silence of the land routine for another time? Look, Bill, I get it, okay? This is your home. You gotta look out for your people. But odds are the killer's gonna show up here. Soak up the atmosphere. I read them books too, Agent Starlin. Watch out for anyone trying to insert himself into the action. Anyone trying too hard with the family. The nature of this crime, it's personal. This guy wants to rule the town. Well, he may not rule it, but he sure shall got our attention. This, you know, Pedro, this is sort of the problem with everything these days, which is that, you know, all the characters on The Sopranos have seen all of the Scorsese movies. Right. And it turns out all of the cops, you know, they've, <laughs> they've all read those Thomas Harris books. Exactly. All the, it's all very, you know, yeah, I, I think anyone writing these days has to be self-referential or else right. you're like, wait, don't they know with how this stuff works? <laughs> right. So they have to all call it out. It's kind of like how in The Walking Dead, no one's in the, like, this is a, a, a world where zombie movies don't exist. Don't exist. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so Tom, you talked about horror, um, and uh, as things go along here, 
Um, I well anyway, I'll just sort of let you pick it up. I'm yeah, not well maybe you. I'll use Pedro's comment as a quick uh, transition because I think that uh, that type of uh, referencing other familiar material is not necessarily a bad thing. I think no, that's no. kind of what genre, mm-hmm. um, you know, filmmaking or, or fiction writing is. You you kind of have a, a structure that most people are aware of, and then you tinker with the different elements uh, for for delightful and like surprising um, results. So this this show is produced by Blumhouse Productions, which has become a very uh, big and very successful uh, kind of an oxymoron, but a low-budget horror filmmaking production company, Get Out, uh, they produce, probably the best known, but they also have done the past few M. Night Shyamalan movies, including The Visit, uh, and also uh, whichever, the the, the schizophrenic, yes, Um, and and also a movie called Insidious. And I think that what Get Out and this show do very well uh, is what someone like David Lynch also did really well, which is, you know, look at this potentially kind of picturesque small town America and then dig an inch deep and you realize that this is a really nasty and vile and really dangerous place for for the people who live there and for anyone visiting. I think that uh, without revealing too much about the the kind of spectral presence that uh, makes itself felt halfway through the show, um, Blumhouse Productions knows that you don't have to be, you don't have to have something flash in front of a screen in order to really scare the audience. It doesn't even have to be close to the camera. The scariest moment in the show for me happens about 50 feet away from where uh, Amy Adams' character is watching. Mm -hmm. Someone just kind of comes out of the woods, goes back in, and that image has stuck with me, uh, you know, since since I watched the show. So I give them a lot of credit for creating the atmosphere of dread, for relying on those jump cuts to disorient, but really for, like, taking some space and distance and letting like spooky stuff really stick with the audience as opposed to people with knives running around (laughs) by the way the name we were looking for was Kristen Ritter yeah yeah her I think she would have been great for this uh, well I have a plan uh, and we can start working on this just you know this afternoon when uh, we're done here which is that so Amy Adams has already said she doesn't want there to be a season two of this because she does not want to play that person again it's not fun really? playing this miserable unhappy drunken chain smoking person and just she's she, at the end of the, every day she feels like she's just crying because she's doing her job well and she doesn't want to do that again so um, we'd have to maybe do like a, like a one episode arc where that character is killed off and then Jessica Jones comes down to window. That's <laughs> <laughs> a crossover episode. <laughs> Speaking of crossover episode, um, so I think it's episode three uh, where uh, Amy Adams' character checks into a suicide watch clinic, right? And her roommate is, uh, if anyone's caught up on Handmaid's Tale, yeah, her roommate is. Uh, she's the actor that plays um, I, I, the new wife, the 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 driver's new wife in the second season of The Handmaid's mm-hmm. Tale. And for me, I was just like, ooh. Okay, Mercy. Well, this is how this works. This is how this is. This was a pre-Gilead yeah. <laughs> like, series, um, but that you know, I won't, I won't uh, cause any spoilers. So that was also uh, disorienting for me because I, I, I just feel as though it was so that character, that actress was so she played that character so similarly to how she played. Um, her character in Gilead. Maybe we're just watching one show, you know? <laughs> like all the shows that we're watching now, they're just one show. Wait, Colin, you said you were really into Patricia Clarkson as Blanche Dubois as whatever the name of the mother is. Yes. Adora? Adora. So, so Adora. What, what'd you like about Adora? Um, well, first of all, I just, I feel so, yeah, I, I was, I'm doubting that I will continue with this series, but maybe I will. I don't know. You're sort of selling it back to me, but... Um, 
the Patricia Clarkson, first of all, is just worth watching doing pretty much anything. And so in this, she plays the mother of Amy Adams. Um, she is someone who's herself damaged in odd ways, but ways that make her meddlesome. Uh, and she, But she's also in this kind of permanent Tennessee Williams doll-like state yeah. where when she dresses up for a funeral, she dresses up like a little girl. Uh, she wears a little black bow in her hair or something like that. Um, and so I, I, I don't know the part, the way it's written doesn't really make any sense to me. Uh, I don't understand what it is she's looking for or why she's doing most of the things that she's doing. Maybe that will be explained ultimately. But occasionally, partly also because this is, to use the words of our president and and the perceptions that you guys have shared, low energy. right? Um, And Patricia Clarkson every once in a while will jolt this thing because she just has a different plan from everybody else. uh, And she's got a little bit of pep when she does it. All right, we're going to have to stop there just so we have time to make some recommendations. Uh, Whether or not this was a recommendation or not, you can decide for yourself it's atmospheric it's got a lot of big names attached to it give it a try if you want to and mercy to pedro if they say go ahead yeah. love is a burning thing and it makes a firing bound by wild desire I fell in to your ring of fire Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Patricia Clarkson. On Monday's show, we'll be back with news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. And I'm back here in New Haven with Tom Breen, Mercy Quay, Pedro Soto. We're going to make some recommendations uh, for you, to you. Uh, Tom, why don't you start us off? Sure. So I guess I'll recommend two movies that I actually uh, reviewed with my uh, fellow reporter at The Independent, Alan Appel, on the most recent episode of Deep Focus. So uh, a plug there. But the first is called Leave No Trace, uh, which is a new movie from director Deborah Granick, who made Winter's Bone about a decade ago, which was Jennifer Lawrence, she of Hunger Games and now everything fame. But that was her, her breakthrough role as a, as a young woman trying to solve a crime somewhere in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. Uh, This feels very similar, except set on the opposite end of the country. This is in Portland, Oregon. Uh, A father played by Ben Foster, a uh, ex-Marine suffering from PTSD, and his teenage daughter, Thomasine McKenzie, are living off the grid in Forest Park in the middle of Portland, trying to remove themselves as much as possible from society they feel uh, they have no truck with. Uh, The movie, I think, to its credit, does not follow a predictable uh, line of their, their living off the grid, they're found, they're forced to adapt. No, these are these are migratory people. I mean, they they do not go down without a fight. And I think that uh, the the distinction between uh, the daughter and the father in in this movie is a really powerful one to depict. In terms of all, all these movies getting at uh, kind of an American isolation vigilante, this whole you do it yourself. This is this is a great take on it. So leave no trace is uh, is my movie recommendation. All right, uh, Peter, what have you got for us tomorrow night in New Haven on the Green? Taylor Dane <laughs> so, from the 80s but she is playing on the green and actually um, I'm unreasonably excited for it but um, in general the New Haven concert series on the green are always a lot of fun always worth coming in and uh, you know usually my recommendations are something uh, New Haven related so this is yet another one uh, come down for 
uh, one of the great many restaurants that we have here and bring bring a blanket or some chairs and come out for a free concert of some 1980s nostalgia. Um, and I'm trying to remember what it. Taylor Dane's big hit is. Not I'll always you. love you. Oh, um, uh-huh. Prove your love. All right. I could sing them if you want. All right. <laughs> Maybe good. that'll be a that'll be a web extra. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, uh, Mercy. What have you got for us? Uh, keeping true to the pattern that I've recently developed um, of recommending space-related uh, endorsements, um, and if if at this moment you're wondering how do, how can she possibly have more space-related <laughs> endorsements, we're out, we're out of space. You, right? <laughs> you are not giving the observable universe enough credit. <laughs> so. A movie on Netflix. Uh, it's called Europa Report. It is about the uh, planet's first manned mission to another planet, which uh, and or I'm sorry, world, which is Europa. Give forgive for the moment that it is ridiculous that the first manned mission to another world would be to Jupiter's moon as opposed to Mars. Forgive that for a moment. <laughs> it is a great movie filled with suspense and an alien type that you haven't seen before. Mm. Um, additionally, uh, the Planetary Society, uh, headed up by um, uh, Bill Nye, who is like the CEO of the Planetary Society, they are planning a, a space-themed cruise for next year. Um, but in order to get that off the ground, they uh, need to folks to fill out a survey about what they want to see on the space-themed cruise. Neil deGrasse Tyson will also be there. So what I need so that I can attend this cruise <laughs> is all of you to take that survey <laughs> so that they can get this off the ground. You can find this survey on the Insta- uh, on the Planetary Society's Instagram page. Thank you. All right. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine a cruise I less want to go on. Uh, <laughs> Except possibly this sharp objects themed cruise, uh, that would be a terrible. That cruise. would be awful. <laughs> right. So everyone um, has to wear long sleeves. Uh, I mentioned that I got off, I took the train down uh, here to New Haven, which I've been doing uh, to do the show. When we do it, uh, I got off and I walked it down Crown Street and I stopped in at Meat and Company. Meat as in mm. the opposite of uh, vegetables, and had delicious sandwiches. A really wonderful place, and despite the name, they have all vegetable sandwiches uh, there if that's what you want to do. And they use a lot of local ingredients and will offer you, for example, today some Swiss chard relish that where they grew the Swiss chard, you know, just a few feet away from where you're eating. So that's just terrific. Um, I also want to, this is a little complicated, um, but, um, uh, you know, looking at Amy Adams playing this uh, horribly damaged person, uh, I was thinking about another performance that's been going on on cable television for many years now, and that is Claire Danes as Carrie Matheson on Homeland. I just watched the seventh and most recent, I think it's the seventh, the most recent uh, series uh, of Homeland, which has really written as close to today's news as they can possibly get it. Yep. And it has some really remarkable things. Did you get all the way to the end I'm of it? Yeah, yeah. The speech that's given at the end of it is a speech that we all need to hear. And I think this performance that Claire Danes is giving, which is frequently over the top and can be grating at times, still is asking a really interesting question, a different one from the vodka in the Evian bottles. She plays somebody <laughs> with severe, severe um, bipolar. bipolar disorder. And, and there's a question about whether the medication that fixes her makes her less effective in certain ways of intuiting out certain things that she's really good at. And so this is, uh, it takes, you know, a fairly serious look at the whole question of mental illness and access to medication and a very serious look at the state of our democracy right now. And you could probably watch this last season without having watched all the other ones, too. So I'm going to recommend that. I should also mention that our uh, producer, Jonathan McPants, uh, co-endorsed the Europa Project. Europa Report. Europa Report, sorry. So thanks to uh, Tom and to Mercy and Pedro. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Jonathan for engineering. We'll be back on Monday. 